Um, speaking of the fall, I've had the honor uh, this past fall of co-founding a regional chapter of uh, the Gospel Coalition here in St. Louis. Um, if you're not familiar with the Gospel Coalition's ministry, if you don't do anything else this morning, I highly recommend you go on their website, sign up to receive their free weekly emails. Their articles and podcasts are excellent. Uh, but this past month, the timely topic of our discussion, uh, which I moderated, and which you can find actually as last week's episode of our West Hills podcast here, was entitled, What is the Role of Politics in the Pulpit? And for those of you who have looked in your bulletins already this morning, you kind of know where we're headed. Now, for some of you, uh, you might answer that question, the role of politics in the pulpit. You might think the answer is rather simple. None, right? There is no role for politics in the pulpit. But I might, as a pastor, respond by asking those of you, holding back a loud amen right now, uh, how do you define politics? Because according to the dictionary, politics is anything of or related to governance. Now by that definition, Jesus was one of the most political figures in all of human history. Here's a guy who said things like, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's, knowing full well that everything belongs to God. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Right, a guy who questioned paying the temple tax since the temple was his father's house. A guy who summarized the very heart of his message in just five Greek words. And Gikin, hey, Basileia to Theu, the kingdom of God is here. Jesus claimed titles like Son of God and Lord Kurios in direct opposition to the Roman emperor's claim to be Son of God and to be worshipped as Lord. And when he was asked point-blank by the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, are you a king? Jesus replied, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, yeah, I'm a king, but my kingdom isn't like your pathetic excuse for a kingdom here. And so they crucified Jesus, not for blasphemy, but on Roman charges of sedition and insurrection. And hung a sign over his cross that said, mockingly, the king of the Jews. In summary, Jesus was as political as they come, and so if you want to keep politics out of the pulpit, you better not talk about Jesus. But at the opposite end of the spectrum, others of you, far from wanting to keep politics out of the pulpit, if you're honest, wish that I would serve as a mouthpiece for the Republican Party this morning. On this final Sunday before the big election day, you are secretly hoping that I'll be preaching a sermon on the gospel of Donald Trump. And y'all are the reason that the other brothers and sisters in here want to keep politics out of the pulpit and the church altogether. While we were driving home from my sister's wedding in Memphis last weekend, we passed a church, and I use that term loosely, uh, that had the biggest Biden-Harris sign out front that I've ever seen. And I had half a mind to call up and, and notify the local Republican headquarters that this church was in clear violation of the Johnson Amendment and that someone should go and revoke their 501c3 status. And lest that you think that I say that as a Republican, I assure you, I would have had the same experience, experienced the same disgust if it had been a Trump-Pence sign. Because friends, it is abhorrent absolutely abhorrent when the church cheapens and compromises 
and exchanges the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ for a counterfeit gospel of any sinful, fallible human politician that this world has to offer. Especially, if I can go so far as to say this, the two sinners on the ballot this year. Like if there was ever an election that should cause Christians to simultaneously weep at the brokenness of this world, that these are the candidates you picked, and yet at the same time to worship when we realize that our hope and our ultimate citizenship is not in this world, Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. This, ought, this election ought to spark a whole lot of both, weeping and worship in us. Brothers and sisters, we've got the best news in town. And yet, how quickly some of us will settle. And I'm not even going to call either of these guys second best, because that's an insult to silver medalists everywhere. After that first presidential debate, I don't know about you, I was ready to go out and buy one of those any functioning adult 2020 yard signs. Like if there's ever a time for the church to evangelize, to capitalize on people's rightful disappointment and disillusionment with the rulers of this world. This is why the psalmist warns us, Psalm 146.3, put not your trust in princes, in human rulers in whom there is no salvation. And yet, how quickly do we do just that? We passed a 150-car caravan on our way down to the wedding last weekend, all flying Trump flags, and I posted it to Facebook and I commented, just imagine if Christians got this excited about Jesus. That post didn't get as many likes as it should have. Maybe the truth hurts. Let me ask you this morning, who are you most excited about this November? Whose flag is in your yard? Is it as clear to your neighbors and to your Facebook friends that you love Jesus as it is which political candidate you support? This morning I intend to preach the most unapologetically political sermon you've ever heard in your life from Psalm chapter 47, which centers around one unashamedly political theme. We might even consider it the Bible's campaign slogan, and here it is, Yahweh is king. Yahweh is king. That is the most political message you will find anywhere, certainly in the Bible. It's straight out of Psalm 47, verse 2. It's as political as any campaign ad you've seen on TV this fall. That is a political statement, friends, of or related to governance. God reigns over the nations. God is the king over all the earth. The psalmist says, Yahweh is king. This is not a standalone sermon. We are continuing our sermon series, Psalms of Hope. And so as we unpack the psalmist's three main points here, he's going to point us to three realms or domains over which Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is king. To say someone is king is to say that they have a kingdom, a domain, or rule over, or, over a, a place, a people, 
over which they reign. Remember Jesus' words to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It suggests that Jesus does have a kingdom. Yahweh is king. And we're going to examine three dimensions of God's kingship here in Psalm 47. But as we work our way through each in keeping with our Psalms of Hope series, I want to highlight for you why I think you and I should derive so much hope from this beautiful truth that God is king. And ultimately and practically, my hope for you this morning is that in the midst of a week when everyone else who profits off of your viewership would love to have you losing sleep because you are glued to the screen in fearful anxiety of the wrong person getting elected, whether you watch Fox News or CNN, whether you use Facebook or Instagram, you need to realize the goal is all the same for all of them, to keep you glued to the screen because they are selling you to their corporate sponsors and advertisers. And you know what sells best of all? Fear, worry. If they can keep you afraid, they can keep you watching. They can keep you glued to the screen. But my hope, and more importantly, God's hope, the same God who commands you, do not be afraid 103 times in his word. The same God who invites you to be anxious about nothing, Philippians 4, 6. That God's hope for you this morning is that you would get a beautiful, peaceful, restful, full night's sleep every night this week because you are going to leave here if you're a follower of Christ this morning totally reassured of where your hope truly lies. Amen? All right, so would you stand with me as you're able and turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 47. If you don't have a Bible, um, I'll have the words on the screen in front of you, but we'd love to give you one. We've got free Bibles we'd love to give you at the info bar after the service. Um, hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Selah. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a song. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we exalt you this morning. You are highly exalted above any rule or reign or authority on this world. Yet, God, as we're going to see as we unpack Psalm 47 this morning, our hearts are so quick to worship lesser kings, 
Father, would you convict us this morning, but would you compel us, would you draw us back to your good and sovereign, almighty and perfect rule over our hearts, over our lives? Would you make Jesus the sole desire of our hearts? God, we thank you for the truths that we've already worshipped and sung together this morning. We praise the one true King. God, would you use Psalm 47 this morning to make that more true in our lives? That we might lift it loud till earth and heaven ring with the sounds of your praises. We want to make Jesus famous in this earth, that your kingdom might come here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> okay, let's start with some context. You might recall in September we covered Psalms 42 and 43. And last month we studied Psalm 46 together and we noted that Psalms 42 through 49 are all listed as Psalms of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were Israel's worship leaders during the reign of King David 1,000 years before Christ. So these Psalms were written as hymns for the sons of Korah to sing in leading the people in worship. We're not exactly sure who authored them uh, David himself is probably as good a guess as any that's been suggested, but regardless, I want to point out that this opening call to worship here in Psalm 47, clap your hands, shout uh, to God with loud songs of joy. These words come right on the heels of uh, Psalm 46, which ended with that famous, wonderful invitation, you remember, to be still and know that I am God. But then God immediately followed that invitation to be still and know that he's God up with the declaration that I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. So we need to see the connection between those two things this morning, between our ability to be still, to have peace, to experience rest, and our exaltation of Yahweh as God, as king of all the earth. Those two things are inextricably linked. The message of Psalm 46 was essentially that our peace is directly tied to our praise. The more we praise and we hope and we trust in God, the more peace and rest and joy you can expect to experience in your life. That's Psalm 46. Enter Psalm 47. And so Psalm 47 is essentially just a giant pep rally then. The psalmist has just concluded that we are most content, not to mention, more importantly, God is most glorified when we exalt him with all our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our strength. And so Psalm 47 really just provides us with a vehicle to do that. This is the psalmist saying, all right, then let's get down to the business of praising God. Let's praise him together, and specifically, we're going to praise him as king. Yahweh is king, number one, over all things. That seems to pretty much encompass it. We'll, we'll unpack it. Over all things, verses 1 and 2, they say the Lord, Yahweh, whenever you see the word Lord in all caps in your Bibles, remember that's translating God's Hebrew personal and proper name, Yahweh, revealed to Moses in the burning bush. That God, 
Yahweh, is to be feared. You say, now wait a minute, Pastor. I thought you just said a minute ago that God commands us not to fear in the Bible. And that's true. God commands us not to fear stuff that isn't worth being afraid of. Don't be afraid of Joe Biden getting elected on Tuesday. Don't be afraid of Donald Trump getting reelected on Tuesday. Don't be afraid of COVID. Heck, Jesus says, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Don't even fear those who are out to kill you. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Friends, that is God. Only God has the authority to send someone to hell. Him you can fear. In fact, him you should fear. That's actually a command in the Bible as well. Fear God. In fact, the Proverbs call the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom. Okay, so Yahweh is to be feared. Verse 2. Why? Because he's a great king over all the earth. He's sovereign over all. The psalmist repeats it again in verse 7. God is the king of the whole earth. God rules over all things. As Abraham Kuyper famously put it, there is not one square inch in all the universe over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, mine. I rule it. I am supreme over it. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He's certainly sovereign over the measly rulers of this world. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Psalm 103.19, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. 1 Chronicles 29.11 and 12, All that is in the heaven and the earth is yours, O Lord. Yours is the kingdom, and you, you are exalted as head above all. You rule over all. Now, let me tell you why that is such good news. Two reasons. Number one, because if God is king over all things, that means that chaos isn't. Okay? In a godless universe, chaos is king. It reigns supreme. Why cancer? Why COVID? According to atheism, as summarized so poignantly by renowned atheist Bertrand Russell, good and evil alike, love and cancer are both but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. Just atoms randomly bumping into one another. As Richard Dawkins said, the universe is bleak, cold, and empty. Get used to it. But our God assures us that there are no accidents, that he makes no mistakes. No, our God says, I work all things according to the counsel of my will, Ephesians 1.11. More than that, better yet, he promises to work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. That's the second reason that God's kingship is such good news this morning because number two, he's such a good king. That's why the psalmist can exclaim in verse one, clap your hands, all all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. This is not like a dreary thing that God is in charge. It's a really good thing because he's a really good God. Listen, not a lot of Christians are going to be partying this Tuesday regardless of the outcome. 
Any way you spin it, this is clearly a lesser of two evils situation. We are called in 1 Thessalonians 5.22 very clearly to abstain from every form of evil. And so you can go ahead and you can hold your nose and you can go do your civic duty and you can go vote on Tuesday, but you can save the streamers and the poppers. You can bring those with you to church next Sunday instead because God, he is worth celebrating. He is worth getting jazzed up about. He's a ruler you can get excited about and shout, shout loud shouts of joy about. Psalm 145 verse 9 declares, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Psalm 34, 8 invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Take refuge in him. Don't take refuge in the kings of this world. Friends, have you tasted and seen the Lord's goodness in your life? Have you experienced his good and merciful rule in your life? If you haven't, then it's no wonder you keep searching for the cheap substitutes of this world. Turn to him this morning. He will not disappoint you. He's the only ruler, in fact, who will not disappoint you. Trust in King Jesus today. Number two, Yahweh is king, not just over all things, but over us. Getting more personal now. The psalmist narrows his focus in verses three through six from celebrating God's sovereignty over all things, over all the earth, and now he zooms in on God's rule specifically over Israel. The nation of Israel, remember that is the immediate historical context of the us here in Psalm 47. It's a call to remember and celebrate God's past faithfulness in the life of the nation and people of Israel. And the psalmist is going to point them to to three past historical events in particular. Number one, verse three, he reminds them he subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. That's a reference to God's leading Israel into the promised land. Canaan, and helping them overthrow the nations that formerly occupied it. And you can read all about that in the book of Joshua, chapters 6 through 12. Number two, in verse four, we hear he chose a heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. That's a reference to God's subsequent gifting of the land to his people as an inheritance. Each of the 12 tribes got their own portion, and you can read all about that in Joshua chapters 13 through 21. And number three, Verse 5, he says, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. That's actually a reference almost verbatim in the Hebrew to David's defeating the Jebusites to reclaim Jerusalem for the Israelites and then parading the Ark of the Covenant back into town with shouts and trumpets and shameless naked dancing. You can read all about that in 2 Samuel chapters 5 and 6. But here's the point. The point of all of that is that God isn't just a king. He's our king. He's my king, the psalmist says. And the psalmist, writing 1,000 years before Christ, would point to these historical events as evidence of God's good, sovereign governance over Israel. But if you and I were rewriting this psalm today, 2,000 years after Jesus, as the church, we might say something like this. We might say, God hasn't just subdued peoples under us. Jesus has now subdued death. He says, oh, death, where is your sting? We we don't just trample over nations, verse 4. Ephesians 1.22 says that God has now put all things under Christ's feet. Jesus trampled over the power of sin 
and hell, all rule and authority and power and dominion, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And if Christ is now in us, he says we are more than conquerors through him who loves us, Romans 8. The church is now the new Israel. The Apostle Paul calls us Jew and Gentile alike, the offspring of Abraham, or as Psalm 47 says, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. That's us now. But the heritage that God has chosen for us, friends, isn't just a plot of land somewhere in the Middle East, just like one-twelfth of Palestine. No, 1 Peter 1.4 calls our inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading, because our inheritance is now in heaven with Jesus. I mean, that is what your king has done for you, church. That's what your king has done for you. Let me just ask you, what has President Trump done for you lately? Cut your taxes? What, what did President Obama do for you? Give you health care? Okay. Go ahead and vote for them. This is, this is a render to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's situation. Go ahead. Pay your taxes. Earthly politicians can have your, your money. They can have your vote. But there is only one candidate who gave up his life for you. Who traded all the splendors of heaven for a crown of thorns and the nails of the cross for you who died the death you deserve so that you could inherit eternal life with God the Father that only he deserved. His name is Jesus, and he's not interested in your vote. He wants your life. He wants your whole heart. Your unwavering, unrivaled devotion. He demands it. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Friends, have you died to yourself to find new life in Christ this morning? If you haven't, then don't be surprised when you continue to be let down by politician after politician every four years. Don't be surprised when you continue to be let down by your spouse, by your significant other, by your kids, by your boss, by whoever it is in your life that you keep trying to elect to the position of functional Messiah in your life, your own personal Savior, who you are looking to for the affirmation and the identity and the fulfillment and the love that you were designed by God to find only in Christ. Hear the good news this morning, friends. Jesus is the king. He is the one true king, like we sang. But you know what's even better? He wants to be your king. He wants to be your king. He's willing to be your king if you will let him. But so often, we're like the Israelites, aren't we? In 1 Samuel chapter 8, what, what do God's people do on almost literally the next page after he leads them into the promised land, vanquishes all their enemies, bestows upon them this amazing inheritance? What do they do? Verse 4, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together to worship God and thank him. No, they came to Samuel and said to him, now appoint for us a king to judge us like the, all the other nations. 
The thing displeased Samuel, and he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. <laughs> they rejected me from being king over them. And 3,000 years later, we still haven't learned our lesson, have we? Right? The risen Son of God is offering to be our king this morning, but we will settle for a narcissistic bully instead, for an amnesic puppet. Take your pick. Friends, the reason it's such good news that Yahweh is king is it means my hope doesn't have to be bound up in any candidate on the ballot this Tuesday. And listen, I, I get it. I, I'm not necessarily saying as a pastor from the pulpit, don't vote. And I already know the emails you're going to send me tomorrow. I, I know about the crossroads we're at as a country, I, how concerned you are for the future of our country, how scared you are of the America your grandkids are going to grow up in. Let me just remind you this morning that if your grandkids' hope is in America, then you should be scared already. Because the gospel isn't that God so loved the world that he gave it America, that whosoever trusts in her. No, the gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whosoever believes in shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. So I don't know about you, but my hope's not on the ballot this Tuesday. I don't know about you, but regardless of the outcome of the election, I'm going to sing praises, verse 6, to God. I'm going to sing praises to our King. The psalmist repeats it four times because he knows we really need the reminder. And remember, it's a pep rally, right? So, so you should imagine verse 6 here in Psalm 47 is this is like the chant of God's people on election night. It's like Yahweh's coronation. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. And so, you know, while the rest of the world chants four more years, four more years, or not my president, not my president, this is our chant, church. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Yahweh is king. Yahweh is king. That's our rally cry. And then we transition finally to point number three in verses seven through nine. The language shifts once again from God is our king personally back to God is the king over all the earth because the psalmist is about to really drive the point home here at the end again that number three, Yahweh is king over all people. He's king over all people. Verse 8 says, God reigns over the nations. What is the scope of God's kingdom? What is the extent of his rule? The psalm is pretty clear. It's redundantly clear. Verse 1, all peoples. Verse 2, all the earth. Verse 3, the peoples. Verse 3, the nations. Verse 7, all the earth. Verse 8, the nations. Verse 9, the peoples. Verse 9, the whole earth. It's universal, right? We are talking about worldwide domination by Yahweh. Remember Psalm 33, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. But the counsel of the Lord stands forever. 
the plans of his heart to all generations. Or Isaiah 40, verse 23, God brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. But, Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, so let the peoples tremble. He is exalted over all the peoples. And so, Psalm 47 leaves us here with a vivid picture of that in verse 9. Verse 9 says, the princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. Now, the big interpretive question that we're left with here is what, what does that gathering look like? Because this is a reoccurring picture that Scripture paints for us, in the, especially in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 4, Jeremiah chapter 16, Isaiah 19, 42 and 43, Daniel 7, 14. Uh, th- there's this recurring picture of all the nations being gathered to Yahweh on the last day. They're all flocking to Mount Zion. And at times, it almost sounds like universalism, like this, this idea that all people from all nations are one day going to be saved. Everybody's good. All, uh, one day everybody's going to be reconciled to God. You've got passages like Psalm 72, verses 8 through 11. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes, just like the Arabians, you know, modern-day Muslims, may they bow down before him and and his enemies lick the dust. May, May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba Uh, bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. But you'll notice there was that one key line that I I just sort of quickly skimmed over. Verse 9, may his enemies lick the dust. If we look more carefully at, at each of these prophetic Otherwise, wonderful, hopeful, prophetic depictions of God's calling all people to himself on that final day. Think about Revelation chapter 7, the New Testament depiction, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's how, that's how the Apostle John describes that glorious day in Revelation 7. But even there, if you read on and you look more closely, you realize that not everyone is included in the great multitude. That all tribes and peoples, plural, all people groups, does not mean all persons. It's not every individual that there are still people by Revelation chapter 20, by the end of the tribulation, God's pouring out in full measure his wrath against humanity's sin. For 12 chapters of Revelation, there are still those who will worship the beast instead, who refuse to repent and turn to Yahweh as their king. Commentator J.M. Boyce points us back to Psalm chapter 2, is yet another example of this. He explains there's a very different picture of the nations drawn for us in Psalm chapter 2 when, when they're drawn to Mount Zion. In that psalm, the kings of the earth are opposing 
the Lord and his Christ. They are saying, let us break off their chains and throw off their fetters. In that psalm, God is laughing at such impotent folly. He scoffs at it and he rebukes the people saying, I have installed my king on Zion, Jesus, my king on my holy hill. He admonishes, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth, kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. Boyce says Psalm 2 reminds us that there are two kinds of compliance with the just reign of God and his son Jesus. There is a willful, joyful compliance on the one hand, but there is also an unwilling, forced compliance on the other. And so, in light of that, when we interpret Psalm 47 here, and in verse 9, these princes of the peoples gathering as the people of the God of Abraham, I read the word as, not in the sense of exactly alike because it's clear elsewhere in scripture that on that day there will be princes and people who still oppose Christ's rule no the word as there must mean in a similar fashion in other words the picture that the psalmist paints here at the end for us is actually two lines there's two lines leading up to Mount Zion and everybody who's ever lived on earth is going to be on one of those two lines parading to Mount Zion There's going to be those lined up behind the princes of this world and those in the line of the people of the God of Abraham. The lines look the same. The princes of the people are gathering as, in the same way as the people of the God of Abraham. There's two lines. The princes of this world, the people of the God of Abraham, the goats and the sheep. God will say to those in one line, depart from me, workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. And he'll say to those in the other line, well done, good and faithful servant. And the most important question on earth for you and me this morning, for every person who has ever walked in this planet, is not who are you voting for this Tuesday, but which of those two lines are you going to be in on that day, friends? Are you going to be in the line waiting to kiss the sun or the line waiting to lick the dust? Jesus promises in John 12, 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. But he's going to draw some with his love and he's going to draw others with his justice. And make no mistake, every knee will bow one day. Every tongue will confess one day that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But you can surrender your life willingly joyfully trusting in the good news that God is a merciful and loving king unlike every other king of this world that Jesus generously offers to be king in your place because he knew that carrying the weight of the world or even just the stresses of your individual life that is a burden you were never meant to bear he says come to me all you who are weary my burden my my yoke is easy my burden is light He says, cast your cares on me because I care for you. And that's the best part of all about this, friends, about God's being your king. Uh, Number three, lastly, is it means you don't have to be. The hope to be found in God's kingship is that you don't have to be king. Some of y'all have been trying to be the dictator of your own life for far too long. And it is past time, way past time, that you admit you don't really make a very good king. That God 
intentionally designed the seat on the throne of your heart to be far too big for you to fulfill. And it is time for you to step down off the throne and to cast your crown down at the feet of the one true king, Jesus. Let him take a turn at being the Lord of your life instead. He is good. He's sovereign. He will not disappoint you. Will you let him be your king this morning? Let's pray.